Welcome back, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. I'm Dave Barfield, and this is the Christ Community Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We hope our show will encourage, challenge, and uplift you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In today's episode, we talk about some things going on in the world around us. We talk about the latest sermon. We read some scripture. And as always, we'll spend some time praying for you. So let's get to it. All right. Thank you all for being with me here today. Yes, that's right. Just you and me today for the podcast. Josiah is still on vacation, and so it's just me here at the microphone and you, my listeners, listening in. So I'm excited to do this today. Hopefully, we will have a good time together. I think we will. When I told my wife that I'll be doing the podcast by myself, she said, so are you just going to like sit there and talk to yourself? And I said, well, yeah, that's kind of it. And the conversation just kind of ended there. So I can understand if you want to log off right now and not listen to the rest of the podcast, that would be fine. But hopefully it will still be an encouragement to you and hopefully cover some good ground today. I want to talk about the sermon, but um, related to the sermon, one of my points that I wanted to bring up today in the podcast, I I could have used further explanation in the sermon, um, but at the beginning I mentioned a minor hero, Albert Einstein, and I realized that well, nobody knows what I mean by minor hero, and by default, then, what do I mean by a major hero? But I kind of classify you know, famous people or people that have influenced me in some way, um, and, and they're not all famous. Some are uns- unsung heroes, but um, just kind of classify them as either major or minor heroes. And I kind of reserve major heroes for what I consider to be the most important things in life, which is, of course, my relationship with God and God's work on this earth, and things like that. So that, that that spiritual kind of emphasis is sectioned off for major heroes. But then that allows me to have a lot of minor heroes, uh, and, and in a way, it kind of allows me to call someone a minor hero without having con- to condone everything in their lives. Uh, for like, for example, Albert Einstein. Yeah, he was, he's a minor hero. I think he's fascinating, incredible intellect, um, but he wasn't really like the best family man, and he had some character flaws, and I don't believe he was a follower of Jesus, so I can't really condone everything about his character and his person, um, at least as far as believing he were uh, would be a brother in Christ. Uh, but I do think that God gave him some gifts of common grace that are really incredible and have really changed um, science and the way we think about the universe and a lot of things. So uh, to me, that's just a that's, I can classify that as a minor hero. It's it's my little uh, escape hatch in, in an outrage culture. You know, when you can't uh, say that someone is your hero unless you can sign off on everything that they have ever said and every position that they've ever taken. And I find that to be impossible. Uh, but this is my way of saying, well, he's just a minor hero. He's not like a major hero. So, um, but as far as major heroes go, I was thinking. Well, if I could illustrate that, who would it be? Um, would it be like Moses <laughs> or John the Baptist or something like that? Well, of course, we find uh, many examples in Scripture of, of major heroes. But I was thinking more of um, people throughout uh, recent history that have impacted me. And one that came to mind, some of uh, the listeners might know uh, this character. Um, he's uh, he's a little unknown as far as um, 
fame goes in the missions realm. Uh, but he's really, I think, pivotal because he's influenced a lot of people. And it, his name is William Borden. Uh, he kind of goes by this William Borden of Yale because he went to Yale University. And uh, he's kind of one of my major heroes because I'm just astounded at the work of God's grace in his life. And uh, if you know about him, then you can tune out for the next you know minute because I'm going to describe who he is and what he did and why I consider him a major hero. But William Borden was a uh, he was a very young millionaire. He came from money. Um, he I forget what exactly what family business he was involved in or his family was involved in. But he he was very wealthy. But he was more importantly a dedicated follower of Jesus. And he decided to go to Yale uh, University, but then shortly thereafter um, wanted to go to the mission field. And um, so he went to Yale, then he went to Princeton for uh, seminary. Uh, this is early 1900s, I think 1906 or something like that. And, um, and then shortly thereafter, Princeton, he decided uh, that God had called him to serve the Uyghur minority in Western China. Um, basically, the, the, the Uyghurs are, are Muslims that live in China, and he felt called to serve them and take the gospel to them. Part of that process that he wanted to um, undertake was to spend time in, I believe it was Cairo, Egypt, uh, studying Islam and studying Arabic so that he would be better equipped to minister to the Uyghur population. While he was there in Cairo, uh, this guy, William Borden, contracted uh, meningitis of some kind and died. And that was it. That was William Borden's life, over 25 years old. And so you might ask, well, how is he a major hero in your life? Well, there's this little anecdote that goes along with his life. Um, when he, and, and some say it's apocryphal, they don't know if it's actually happened, but his life displayed it, so I say it's good enough that it actually happened. But um, they say that in his Bible, throughout his life, he wrote three phrases, and you probably have heard these um, if you have heard of William Borden before. Um, but he wrote these three phrases, and they kind of summarize his life. Um, but the first phrase was that he, when he decided to forsake his uh, millions, uh, his wealth, and go to the mission field, or at least use his wealth for the sake of missions and, and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world, he wrote the phrase, no reserve, in his Bible. So there's no reserve fund that isn't uh, available for the work of Jesus Christ. So no reserve kind of became this the, the, this first phrase that summarized his life. Um, but then there were, later on in his life, there, there was a second phrase, and um, supposedly this was something that um, he said after uh, he was told that he wouldn't be in the family business or that he would never amount to much. Uh, basically, when, when undergoing criticism, he said the phrase, no retreat. Uh, in other words, no going back on this mission that God had called him to. So no reserve, no retreat. And then supposedly, shortly right before he uh, was about to die, uh, he was sick, and he wrote in his Bible, no regrets is the third phrase. So you've probably heard no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Um, whether that story is true or not, his life exemplified those three phrases. And to me, that makes him hero-worthy. Um, 
wherever this man went, uh, from my understanding of his life, he always pointed people to Christ. In fact, he was known for being the millionaire that would go down and, and hug homeless people on the streets of New York City. Um, and uh, so I just, I'm thoroughly impressed with William Borden, and I know that, you know, he's a sinner, just like the rest of us, uh, and, uh, but Jesus obviously did a profound work in his life, and his testimony and the fortunes that he bequeathed to the China Inland Mission um, did a great uh, work for the gospel as far as missions goes, so that's what I mean by a major hero. Like, to me, William Borden is a major hero, just someone that I can look up to and say, wow, that's you know, if I were placed in that situation, I would. I hope I would follow uh, in his footsteps, or at least in my current situation. I'm not a millionaire, but um, will I still have the same mentality? No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. So that's kind of what I meant by uh, a major uh, hero, and then the minor hero uh, in the sermon. And, and these aren't, like I said, these aren't. These don't have to be um, famous people. These big figures that cast big shadows in our lives. It, it's just, it can be some unsung heroes, like, for example, my dad, he's a major hero in my life, and uh, some other some other people that I could list off. But um, yeah, so they don't have to be famous. They could just be people that, uh, major heroes that I would look up to and say, they were followers of Jesus. I want my life to, to be patterned after that. Uh, and then some minor heroes that I would throw in there and say, you know, that was fascinating. God really had uh, worked in their lives as far as common grace, and they did some neat things. And so it's a minor hero. And so that's what I meant by a minor hero in Albert Einstein, really just fascinated by what he accomplished and what he did. And so I've tried to utilize um, his habit of thought experiments, which is uh, what I brought up in the sermon on Sunday. Uh, thinking through something, even if it's ludicrous, just figuring it out uh, all in the comfort of an easy chair. Um, much like my other minor hero, uh, Sherlock Holmes, would do. So there you have the major minor hero uh, heroes of Dave Barfield's life. Not that you asked, but there you go. Uh, now to the sermon itself. Uh, hopefully you found the sermon encouraging. I know I was encouraged by the text and, and, and really enjoyed digging deep into the uh, material uh, in preparation and uh, enjoyed um, spending time with you all Sunday morning. We were in John 6, and this is kind of the ble- uh, the bread of life passage. And John 6, 41 to 51, Jesus is interacting with the Jews that don't believe him. And so if I could just give a brief summary of the, of the sermon, it was uh, the Jews showed us three things. They showed us that uh, we need Jesus. They showed us that we've always needed Jesus. And then, of course, they, they show us, Jesus shows us actually in the passage that we will always need Jesus um, going forward into the future and into eternity. So that was the main idea of the sermon. But there was a second purpose to the sermon. So that was kind of the summary uh, of the the expository preaching done um, on John 6, 41 to 51. But to fit into our sermon series, if you recall, we're in a sermon series called Vital Signs, Marks of a Healthy Church. In order to fit into our sermon series, I needed to discuss this idea of biblical theology, biblical theology. Uh, and so at that point in the sermon, I kind of, we kind of uh, went alongside of the text and tried to illustrate what biblical theology was by looking at the text and then by relating it to other passages of Scripture. So let me give a recap of what biblical theology is, and there are lots of definitions that you could come up with, and um, uh, 
people are writing dissertations on these things and books on these things, and people way smarter than I am are, are living their lives swimming in these waters. Um, so I'm only giving you a, a, a little bit of what is out there. Um, but again, biblical theology isn't just isn't a theology that's built on the Bible. It, it's of course that, but it's much more. Um, it is the discipline whereby you look at the overarching story of Scripture and relate it to the individual stories of Scripture, and how all of that focuses us, focuses us on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So there's this big story that God set into motion, and then there's all these hundreds of little stories. How do those two relate, and what do they teach us about Jesus? So that's kind of the working definition I used for biblical theology. And I tried to illustrate through John 6, 41 to 55, how you have to do some biblical theology in order to understand that text. And doing biblical theology means kind of, as I tried to illustrate with a tornado or a whirlwind or a cyclone or a vortex, um, I use some of those terms in the sermon, uh, you have to sp- you have to look around for more details, and you start picking up more and more details, and this tornado gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so you start in John, that's in the one location, John 6, and then you then you look around at the rest of the chapter, and then you spiral outwards, and you pick up the rest of John, and then all of the New Testament, and then add in the New Old Testament, and then both the entire canon put together. And so that's kind of the task of doing biblical theology, and at the center of that whirlwind is the personal work of Jesus Christ. And so in John 6, we see that earlier in the chapter, the Jews had been fed um, by Jesus Christ. He had compassion on the crowd, this multitude that needed needed food, and so he met their physical need by feeding at least 5,000 people. Um, The disciples had this little kid that had five loaves, two fish, and Jesus uh, thanked God the Father for the food and then divided it up to all of these people, and the text says, and they ate as much as, as they wanted. And so shortly thereafter being fed, Jesus disappeared, disciples disappeared. The next morning, the Jews are looking for him. They want breakfast, and Jesus is hiding. And, and so then the Jews, they finally find him, and they uh, beg him for more food, and they quote the Old Testament and talk about their fathers receiving manna in the wilderness. And so right then, we start to do biblical theology, and we kind of back up into the Old Testament, or here in John, earlier in John 6 than our passage from the sermon. Um, earlier in John 6, we see that the Jews are wanting manna, wanting bread from heaven, and they start, and they quote um, Exodus 16 and how Moses, their fathers, gave them manna from heaven, and, um, and then Jesus starts using that as an illustration of, no, they have a deeper need. Their only reason they had bread in the wilderness was because they were complaining, and they did not trust in God, and yet God sent manna as a sign that you could trust Him, and that He, that he would be with you, and that He would provide for you. And so the Jews, their intention was to trick Jesus into getting more food, and Jesus' intention was to show them that they needed the bread of life. So automatically, even just in this one passage, we're already expanding our biblical theology uh, at least as far back as, as Exodus. And then in the passage itself, the, this, uh, Jesus mentions about eternal life and, ha- and living forever and raised up in the last day, and so we kind of have this, this story that is connected to the end of the story, and we went to Revelation and saw that there was this marriage supper of the Lamb, and it's been God's desire from Genesis to Revelation to be with His people, have His people in His presence. And one symbol of that is bread and having a meal with Him, uh, and that's why it's in the Old Testament, that's why it was in the Tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Psalms, in the New Testament. 
uh, and then, of course, towards the end of the end of the New Testament as well. What I didn't have time for, um, and I kind of wish I had, because it was it was two points of application, and there there were there were some applications peppered throughout the, the sermon, but there were two ways that we could apply what we just talked about from the sermon, and I'll try and give them to you now. But if you think through all of that, Jesus, the bread of life, biblical theology, and you give it a good good old so what. Like, like, so what that this is true? Like, I understand that Jesus is the bread of life, and I love that truth. And I understand that we're supposed to do biblical theology and understand this big story, the meta narrative, all that kind of stuff. But so what? Like, what? And I don't say that in a uh, derogatory way, but like, literally, what, what, what does that mean for me? What, what do I need to do, or what do I need to believe, or what do the people around me need to do and believe as a result of these truths? And so I think there's a big so what um, if we look at biblical theology itself. It gives us the reason for doing it. I have in mind Hebrews 11, and I'm thinking of Hebrews 11 right towards the end where we see just after the hall of faith, right? You know Hebrews 11, people commended for their faith and um, the work that God had done through them and through their faith. But at the end of the Hall of Faith, and this is where I think biblical theology comes in, at the end of the Hall of Faith, in verses 39 and 40, there's this phrase, or this, uh, these, this sentence, and all these, so all those people in the Hall of Faith, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so when I see this text, I think, wow, do Christians today know that they are in the hall of faith? We kind of put these other people in the hall of faith on pedestals, like these major heroes, right, of the faith, um, because they're, they're, they're enumerated and some of their deeds are enumerated, um, and they're commended for their faith. But the author of Hebrews wants to include us in there, and I think that's amazing. And the only way we would see that is if we're doing biblical theology and how we fit into the story. And Hebrews kind of shows us that there's God is still working. This big story that I'm a part of um, isn't over yet. God is doing something in this world still, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so what I think that does is it places all of our frustrations and joys and struggles and successes in life in context. Like if we were to take the current cultural chaos that's going on and division that is our society and the outrage culture that I've talked about a number of times, like how does that make sense and what does all that mean? Well, biblical theology lets us find meaning for those things. COVID-19 is a virus. It's going on. But if we just look to COVID-19 and kind of look at it itself, it won't make much sense because it's, it's uh, confusing. Where did it come from? What do we do with it? How does it, what does it demand of me as if it had some kind of power? Um, and if we just look at it itself, it will have a power over us. But if we look at a virus in the grand scheme of things, the big picture, the meta narrative, the overarching story, it all fits in perfectly fine. And it didn't catch God off guard. In fact, it's part of his ways and work in this world. 
And doing biblical theology, I think, helps us do that. It grounds us in the story so that we don't get caught up in this me-centered universe that my experience defines me, my preferences defines me, define me, my struggles define me, all of these things, right? Because we, we're all narcissistic by, by design, and we all are just trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves um, because of our first parents. But the story of Scripture places us and gives us due place in the big story. And so we don't need to be tossed to and fro by circumstances. We can find ourselves in the big story, as Hebrews does. It puts us in there in this hall of faith with what God is doing in the world um, so we know that it's not over yet. And so hopefully that that first point is encouraging. But then the, the second point of application that I wanted to get at was from John 6 itself. What did Jesus do when people had a physical need? Well, earlier in the chapter, he he met the physical need, but then they came back to him again for more (laughs) because they still had physical needs. What did Jesus do? He pointed them to himself. And I think that's significant because biblical theology shows us that, that it is all about Jesus. And all of these needs and hungers and chaos and confusion, whatever, all of these things point us to Jesus. Uh, and, I mean, here's the bread illustration. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very words of God. It would be easy for us to get caught up in the heat of the moment and think that Jesus doesn't care about my problem. I'm, I'm underemployed. And I can't feed my family. Well, Jesus does care. So go to him with that care. Go to Jesus. Or uh, I'm losing my family. It's falling apart, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Jesus does care. And what does he do for people that that have needs? He gives more and more of himself. And that's, of course, exemplified by the cross of, of Calvary. So I didn't really have tons of time to go there with the applications. There are other things that we that I, I think I tried to emphasize in the, in the sermon, but hopefully that'd be an encouragement for those that, that are able to listen today. That place yourself in the story of biblical theology, and it will ground you. It'll, give, it'll uh, reassure you that God is for you and not against you. But then also in this scene itself, John 6, look at what Jesus does. Look to Jesus. He, he wants our hungers and our needs to drive us to him. And if we do that by his grace, um, we know that according to John 6, 41 to 51, he will satisfy us. He will raise us up in the last day, and we will live forever. our next segment, we're going to take the time to meditate on God's Word. God's Word is an anchor for our souls when life and the world is spinning out of control. So let's together chew on these words, meditate on them, and thank God for the gift of His Word. Today, since we've already spent time in Hebrews, I thought we would follow up with what comes after that hall of faith in Hebrews 11. So we're going to read Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And the one thing that I wanted to highlight from this text is back in verse 3 of chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. So there we're told by the author of Hebrews to think about Jesus. So consider him. But then he gives an instruction after that. He says, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, the grounds for not growing weary or faint-hearted is looking to Jesus and considering him. If I don't want to get tired of the Christian faith, what do I do? Do I dig down deeper? Do I um, practice self-talk and really pep-talk myself into obedience? According to this passage, I'm supposed to consider Jesus, who endured hostility. The grounds for our endurance and our um, not growing weary is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why back in verse uh, two, he said, looking to Jesus. Like, our eyes should be on Jesus, and we see elsewhere in Scripture that this is how we're changed from one degree of glory to another. So I hope that's an encouragement to you today. No matter what you're facing, look to Jesus. Consider Him who endured these things that were horrible on our behalf, and by so doing, you won't become faint-hearted, and you will have endurance. And then one other thing from this passage was this idea of discipline. For me, it's very easy to think that when I'm disciplined by the Lord, it's not pleasant, and it must be because He doesn't like me. And that's not what this passage is saying at all. This passage is saying, God loves me so much that He's willing to discipline me. So, in a way, discipline becomes a reassuring thing. (laughs) I'm a legitimate son of God because oh, look, he's disciplining me. And um, so whatever chastisement you might be going through, whether it be um, 
conviction of sin or just um, um, a season of life where you, you feel like God has been silent or um, whatever it might be that you're walking through, let me encourage you that this type of discipline is normal for the Christian. God wants us to become more like Jesus, and He disciplines us because it's for our good, which means it's for His glory. Uh, And so let your discipline be um, something that gives you great assurance in your faith that God is for you. He's not against you. And if we do, um, I think in the end, well, we will not grow faint-hearted and we will have endurance like the author of Hebrews reminds us. As we close, I'd like to pray for you briefly, and I'd invite you to pray along with me if you're able. Gracious Father in heaven, first I thank you that we can call you Father, that you set this story in place thousands of years ago, really into eternity past within the Trinity, that you would set out to redeem your creation so that we could be in your presence, so that we could be called your children. So I just thank you now for that truth. Thank you for that reality that we can crawl up on your lap and call you Abba, Dad, Father. Um, What a privilege. Um, So I ask now that as we face very strange times in our society, uncertainty, a bit of chaos, prejudices, division, would you please help us not to grow faint-hearted? Lord, I confess I've, I've, I have grown tired. I have grown faint-hearted and weary in, in trying to navigate all these things, and sometimes well, sometimes poorly, but I, I'm tired. And so would you please put my eyes back on Jesus? And for anyone listening, I ask that you would put their eyes on Jesus as well so that we don't grow faint-hearted. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is our bread of life and that when feasting on him, when believing on him, we know that we have eternal life. Father, what a gift that you sent your son to be the bread of life for the world and that you didn't just leave us in our skepticism and in our doubts and in our fears and in our hunger, but that you sent Jesus for our soul's satisfaction. What an amazing plan. Lord, I thank you for the gift of biblical theology that we can look at this big story, find ourselves in it, and see how all of it uh, spirals around the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for all the listeners today that they would be encouraged to look to Jesus, that Jesus would be the bread of life for them, and that they would find in him their soul satisfaction. And we ask all of these things in his great name. Amen. Thank you all for listening. If you've enjoyed this today, we invite you to share it with family and friends. To learn more about our church, visit us online at ChristCommunityCarmel.org and join us again next week for the Christ Community Podcast. Until then, the peace of Christ be with you. God bless.